Welcome to Paytech Talk, the podcast of payment technology law, brought to you by the dedicated lawyers at Adderholt Munich. With Paytech Talk, you get the latest trends and topics and experience the world of payment, banking, and IT. So, hi everyone, this is Frank, and uh, you're listening to Paytech Talk. Today is our 25th anniversary episode, and I have the honor of speaking with none other than the famous author, advisor, and commentator of digital financial <laughs> services, Dave Birch. Dave, thanks uh, for joining us today. You are much too kind, Frank, but yes, thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. Okay, so uh, Dave, today um, we wanted to talk about two topics. The first one, of course, would be open banking, and maybe we can touch a little bit on PSD2 there. And secondly, we'd, I would like to talk to you about your digital identity um, approach and how we could deploy sure. this on KYC purposes. So maybe maybe sure. we start with the open uh, uh, banking topic. Uh, so in the UK, I've learned that the uh, APIs are open uh, since the beginning of this year. So how is your experience so far with open banking? Is there is there like any effect you can already see, like are fintech startups pushed or is it the other way around? What is your experience so far? Uh, well, I mean, right now, um, not terribly much has happened because a lot of the, well, for, for two or three reasons, really. So one is um, partly people are working out what exactly they're going to do, you know, what exactly their strategy is going to be. And some of the bigger players um, haven't yet, you know, made their, you know, made their sort of public moves. So I think all of us are assuming that, you know, some of the big retailers, the internet giants and so on, will be moving into this space to get access to the, to the consumer bank account data and actually to instruct payments as well. But, um, but they haven't, you know, made those things uh, public yet. So there's a lot happening below the surface. The second thing is the, um, I mean, and only uncharitable people would suggest that this is deliberate, and I'm not an uncharitable person, but the banks have not made the authentication journey absolutely as simple as possible. So um, if you're a third-party provider, a TPP, and you want access to the customer account to do something, you have to go through you know, strong two-factor authentication. And and you know this from the PSD2 side as well, just how complex right. some of this can be. And then um, thirdly, there's the, you know, there is just the issue of what the new business models will be. So on the one hand, it is possible to connect stuff up and it works. And you can already see some some people starting to do some things in that. But what are the business models going to be? So if you look at the situation for banks, broadly speaking, you know, they essentially have sort of three options around the business model. They can carry on supplying the financial services products and distributing them and use the APIs as a way of just making their internal processes more efficient. And I mean, this is what people refer to as the Amazonization model, where you change the internal structures so that all services are delivered through APIs and all services consume APIs. And that gives you a flexibility in bringing new products and services to market. 
So that'd be one way of doing it. Another possibility would be to focus on um, constructing some great financial services and products and building app stores so that third parties can get in and distribute them to the public. And this is what you see from people like Starling, for example. Um, and then you have um, the idea that actually the manufacturing of those financial products is a volume, low margin, heavily regulated business. So you assume that that's going to consolidate into a few scale players. And then you focus on the distribution side of things. And actually, you can see banks like HSBC have already gone for a distribution play by doing the account aggregation services. So that, you know, this is the, the HSBC, um, what do they call it? The HSBC Connect app. So you can see your HSBC account, but you can also see all your other bank accounts through the same app. So when there are these sort of three ways forward and people are exploring them, but, you know, right now, it is complex to, to get one of these services up and running. And the authentication piece, I think, is particularly problematic because you have the PSD2 authentication coming downstream and nobody wants to have to build two completely different services. You know, what we're all hoping is that there'll be sort of a common service, a common user experience. But what that will be is a little difficult to say. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this with your clients. If you're a big TPP, let's say you're a Carrefour or something, and you want access to the customer account, well, you, Carrefour, have already authenticated the customer. You know, let's say they're part of your loyalty scheme or something. You already know who the customer is. So when the customer says, you know, you can have access to my bank account, you can instruct a payment, you don't want the customer to have to come out and go into some banking loop to reauthenticate themselves through some other bank app or some other thing. That's a horrible customer experience. But at the moment, PSD2 says that the ASPSPs, the banks, um, have to be in control of the authentication service, right? Right. So I'm not quite sure what the sort of... Le I mean, I can, I can see in my head some technological options for improving that situation, but I'm not sure how they square with the legal options, um, you know, which you and I were talking about a couple of weeks ago. Because uh, I think you have to have some situation where somehow the third party provider has to have some contractual agreement that they will take liability for incorrect authentications, right? It would have to be something like that. Um, let me pick up on two very interesting uh, things you, you're, you were just saying. So you said basically there are three ways forward uh, when it comes to open banking. And you said not much has happened so far. There's a lot of happening in the background. <clears throat> let me open up a fourth way. I would, would be interested to know your opinion on this one. So what you said is that the banks are open up for TPPs so that TPPs can access uh, <clears throat> bank accounts and the bank data. Don't you think that there is also a, a, a chance for banks to access the data of the big tech, let's say for GAFA or for BAT? Because in theory, what, what a legal framework would now allow with open banking is once the big techs also do the open banking, um, they would also need to open up their data to banks. So do you think 
this could be a business model for, for the banks to, well, at least um, come a bit closer to where the big techs are. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I understand the legal framework for what you're saying there, Frank. So, under the under PSD two, Facebook can come to me and ask for permission to have access to my customer data, and then they have API access. Although PSD two doesn't mandate APIs, but we all understand that's how it will be delivered. Uh, then Facebook has API access to my bank account. But there is no legal structure, so far as I'm aware, for my bank saying to me, can we have access to your Facebook account? And then Facebook providing an API to the bank. So under the provisions of existing regulation, GDPR and such like, I could wake up every morning, download all of my Facebook data, and then send it to the bank. But the bank is not going to get API access to my Facebook data. No, you're correct. So I just maybe was a bit shortcut here. So um, this would only work uh, when Facebook is uh, providing financial services. So once they are regulated. And, yes, but uh, Facebook wouldn't provide finance. Well, if I was advising Facebook, well, you know, which I'm not, but if I was advising Facebook, and frankly, if you were advising Facebook, neither of us would be advising Facebook to get a banking license. No, but they're already providing financial services. Amazon does, Amazon Pay, so they're, they're already licensed. So I was wondering, I haven't uh, taken a deeper look into it, but um, you, you don't need to have a, uh, a banking license for that. No, so PSD2 gives me access to payment accounts. Exactly. And so if uh, some uh, Amazon subsidiary has a payment institution license, then under PSD2, other banks will have access to that transactional data. Yeah. But they won't have access to my Amazon data. No, that's fair enough. Um, and actually, that's a highly asymmetric situation, which I think a great many people in banks are quite rightly quite upset about. Yeah. Because if you're one of the big banks, in fact, you know, I'm not the, although, <laughs> I mean, I wrote an article for Wired magazine about this last year. Um, and of course, nobody pays any attention because it's just me. <laughs> but uh, but now you have Santander and Deutsche Bank waking up to this and beginning to complain about it, and they have a point. So what Anna Boltin from from Santander said in April was, "Wait a second, the Commission is not creating a level playing field, which will engender more competition in the financial services space. The Commission has accidentally." created a highly asymmetric playing field where now the internet giants have access to all of the banking data but the banks don't have any reciprocal access to the social media and browsing and other data and you know to be fair she's got a point um you know we all want the banks to be more competitive and i think we can all understand the logic of a commission position which says, look, you banks have a, a very special place in society. Uh, you're, you're granted uh, the very special privilege of credit creation. And in return for that, you have to provide a basic service, which includes opening up the customer data to whoever the customer wants to give it to. I can understand the logic of that yeah. position. But to then go on and say there's going to be no rights associated with 
Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and so on, that's not going to lead, in my opinion, to a highly competitive situation. It's That's basically handing the whole market over to the internet giants, which I'm, I'm sure isn't the commission's intention. So how would you solve this problem? How would you, how would you, well, provide a level playing field? Would you, would you, in, to, to open up like the social media accounts, would you then say, we have- Well, I think we could look, we could look at Australia, I think, as a, a way forward here. So in Australia, the open banking legislation there comes under the, you know, the general consumer open data legislation it's not special for banking it happens that banks are the first people to have this obligation placed on them but the australian government is creating a thing i can't think what the proper name of it is it's something like the is it the data standards body or something i can't remember what it's called but they're creating something where there'll be a standard format of data and all companies utility companies banks everybody will gradually be brought into that regime. And as I understand it, the social media companies in time will be the same. So this might be a very interesting way to do it. And this would have the great merit that it would mean um, restraining the monopoly power of those internet giants without requiring some form of breakup, which has been the traditional um response to in order to save capitalism in the past you know you've taken things like at&t and broken them up and then a hundred years before that you've taken things like standard oil and broken them up so breaking things up was the response in the traditional economic model you know that was the way to save capitalism from from monopolies but it could be that in the new economy you know, where data is the new oil and all that sort of thing, that the best competitive response is not to break them up, but to open them up. So you say, well, with, you know, if, if you're trying to create a social media that, uh, that's going to compete with Twitter, say, uh, or compete with Facebook, it's that's very hard to do. They have very entrenched positions, which, of course, things like GDPR are entrenching further. But if uh, if you could create a new social network and ask customers for permission to access their Facebook data, which they could grant you, then Facebook and the new service would have to compete on the merits of the right. services they provided. And I think that would be, uh, I, you know, I am not a competition expert, but um, that strikes me as a more effective means of competition. So, so I, I, I can see... Uh, ways forward. What it does mean, of course, is that the what's going on in open banking assumes a much greater sort of strategic response. I think a lot of people still see it as some something to do with IT, something to do with messing around with apps and banks, and perhaps really not that important, where, of course, actually yeah. it's critically important. Well, thanks for this. I would really <laughs> would, uh, go deeper into that topic, but I'm afraid we have to move forward, um, but let me just go. Uh, let me just pick up on sure. that uh, problem you mentioned earlier. Uh, before we go to digital identity, you said it's 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 very problematic that um, if you're a, a big TPP and you already know who your customer is and you you have the authentication processes and so forth, and then you have to do it again once you want to enter the uh, the, the bank account. So um, we were discussing this a couple of weeks ago. You said it so. The, if there is not like a one 
one um, like standard way to do a one-time authentication process. Uh, we believe that the only thing a TPP can do is to enter into a, a contractual relationship, a contractual agreement with, with the bank saying, listen, if anything goes wrong, um, I take full responsibility. I think this is this is how the market will have have to go forward because um, I, I frankly I don't see any way uh, other than uh, doing this because at, at currently we don't see one technical standard for this in Germany. There's a lot of discussion going on. Um, we're now talking about yeah. screen scrape screen scraping the API because. You maybe heard about the EBA approach that says if the bank is responsible for, for the authentication for the 2FA process, they can literally force the TPP um, to redirect uh, the customer data again. So what's the, the result would be that, um, that the TPPs who are now subject to regulation um, and the only, the, the only reason why they became subject of regulation was because they were touching on uh, on the credentials, on the banking credentials. And now we might see a way where the bank's just forced to redirect. So where I'm aiming is we still have a lot of discussions, a lot of banking lobbying and fintech lobbying. So what would be, from your experience, what would be a way forward to solving this problem? So let's say we have a contractual relationship and, and, and a contractual agreement where the TPP says, I'm taking full responsibility if anything goes wrong. What would be a, well, let's say a, a good way for the TPP to move forward from this? What would be a safe way? Well, I think I think a good way, I mean, I agree with you that that, that sort of contractual arrangement seems to be the only practical way forward. And in order for that to work, the TPPs have to have access to uh, identity and authentication services which are of sufficient quality um, to make that all work, right? And the obvious people to provide that service are, of course, the banks themselves. So a sensible way forward, I would think, would be if the banks got together to provide uh, a modern digital identity infrastructure, more sophisticated than the, the sort of bank ID kind of services, and then the TPPs had access to that. And the great merit of doing that from a business point of view is that the banks could charge the TPPs for access to that service. And the TPPs would pay it because it would save them money yeah. because, because of reduced fraud and, and so on and so forth. So to me, that seems like a little bit of a win-win. The banks provide the APIs free uh, and the authentication services free but the identity yeah. service isn't free. So when I first go, I, I go and sign up with the TPP, the TPP finds out who I am mm -hmm. through the bank digital identity infrastructure and can then store a token, which, which makes sense in that infrastructure. You know, I mean, I know we're just talking about very high level whiteboard clouds at the moment, but I do feel there's an argument to be made that says there is no business case in providing the API services for AISP and PISP. So therefore, banks have to look at other APIs to provide some income so that identity authentication, the whole security thing, isn't just a cost, but is a platform for new products and services. 
And so when you put those two things together, you say, well, what could the banks offer through APIs that could potentially make some money? Well, I think the answer is identity. And I, I you know, I don't think that's a science fiction uh, way of thinking. Yeah. Um, I mean, you were just, I think it was a, a couple of weeks ago, you referred to an article from Ajar Balar. I don't know if I pronounced it right correctly from MasterCard. Uh, who's claiming that the future of digital identity verification will be simple as saying, hi, it's me. Hi, I'm Dave. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, well, I, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, you know, look, come on, he's head of security at MasterCard, so he knows what he's talking about. Um, but, I, but obviously, I agree. I think strong biometric authentication against revocable tokens, preferably stored in tamper-resistant memory, is a very, very sound architecture. So I walk into the store, the store gets my identity from the phone. And then when I come to make a transaction, it forces, in some circumstances, it forces an authentication. And in some cases, that will be a passive authentication because the phone knows how I'm carrying the phone. It knows how I press the buttons. It knows where I am. It knows that the SIM hasn't been swapped. It knows that I'm not doing anything unusual. So you might have a passive authentication where the, the, the phone just says, yes, this is Dave. The, the uh, phone might force an active authentication where I, I speak or I put my fingerprint on it or something like that. But either way, having that kind of strong authentication um, You know, I can't see any other way forward. It makes obvious sense to go down this route. I mean, maybe I'm very, <laughs> maybe I see the world through a very narrow prism, but uh, I think it's an obvious way forward. But, you know, you and I know that there are already, um, the, the, the technical, technical framework is already there. You named it, you had a, a few uh, yeah, examples. Yeah, yeah. But, so, but you, you see the, the, the regulators, the, the lawmakers um, haven't really picked this one up. So if you look at it from a regulatory perspective, if you look at it, 2FA process, or you look at the uh, KYC process in, in anti-money laundering law, there isn't, there isn't really a framework yet that would allow such a way of identifying us. No, no, it's in, in a way, it's a very backward looking, you know, obviously, I, I want a much stronger digital identity infrastructure that supports a much more flexible set of implementations. You know, this is why this is why I keep insisting on separating the identification, the authentication, and the authorization. Yeah. You know, that the, the regulators don't see things in that structured way. Um, and so they tend to sort of jumble things up a little bit. And I, I'm not sure that's effective anymore. Apart from anything else, it makes the regulation sort of slightly backward looking um, when it comes to the sort of requirements they place around authentication. And I'll give you one obvious reason, which is you can strongly, you can strongly authenticate me against a pseudonymous token whereby the counterparty has no identification data at all which is a good thing because we want to keep personally identifiable information out of transactions right exactly so maybe i know you have to go um one last question so what sure. from your experience what would what would be how could we well How could we um, tell the, the lawmakers, the regulators, that this is the only way forward that, 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 that makes sense? Is, is there like, how, how do we even reach out to them? I mean, you're talking on the Money 2020 all the time and all the other big conferences. So your word must have been heard. 
by the lawmaker. How would you go forward from this? I mean, this is this is a way to really, you know, from a European perspective also, to to um, create a regulatory framework to actually move on forward and not looking backward all the time. I think I think we have to accept to some extent, Frank, that, that you know the fault is, you know, I come from the technological side of things, and I, you know, I suppose we we just haven't been effective enough at explaining the technology to to it's the thing that puts if the regulators could understand the capabilities of the new technologies the new technology the new technologies are capable of delivering so much more than the regulators imagine Be because we have all these amazing new cryptographic techniques we have you know we have blinding we have homomorphic encryption we have zero knowledge proofs we can do some amazing and amazingly counterintuitive things but those things are hard to explain and you know it's it's up to us to try and find i, I can't point the finger at anybody else it's up to us to try and find better ways to explain these amazing new techniques um to these people great so Dave, uh, we are running out of time. Uh, so I guess I, uh, I would like to say thank you very much for this really cool interview and that you took the time to, uh, to speak to us. Oh, you're more than welcome, Frank. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, maybe we just invite some of the lawmakers and regulators to Amsterdam next year and then we try to tell them again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. See you soon. Okay, thank you so much. Bye, Frank. Bye. So thanks everyone for joining our 25th anniversary episode. Um, if you like what we what, what we are doing at Paytech Talk, uh, please give us a review on iTunes. And of course, I would like to uh, thank Isabella for um, putting all the strings together here at uh, Paytech Law and Paytech Talk. Yeah, I guess that's it. Have a great week. Bye. Thank you for joining Paytech Talk today. For further information, visit your source for legal and industry-specific insights on payment, banking and IT and subscribe to our newsletter at paytechlaw.com.